This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Action Prompts. Our top ten films of 2019. And the Tomb of Christian Rosenkreutz. It's the critical moment in the heist of a lifetime, but things have gone sideways. Bullets are coming from all directions, so you need to think and act quickly. Find your friends. Keep your head down. And don't tip your hand. Never Bring a Knife is a social deduction game with less talking and more shooting from our friends at Atlas Games. In Never Bring a Knife, each player has a secret role, cop or criminal. Pay attention to figure out who's on your team, then work together to take down the opposition. When the first player falls, their whole team loses and the other team wins. Never Bring a Knife is fast, it's action-packed, and it has duffel bags full of cash. Actual duffel bags full of cash not included. It's also available in friendly local game stores and online starting Friday, January 17th. Stop in and pick up your copy or go to atlas-games.com slash never bring a knife. Or follow the link in the show notes. Because guns and money always make game night more fun. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures... The Crunch of Doritos and the Benevolent Gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, we have so many choices as to what to do, where to go on the big map, why it's as though the big map were some sort of, uh, I don't know, Robin, a box of sand, not a constraining dungeon at all. Uh, we're talking about sandbox games today because they are, I think, probably the kind that you and I are, I don't know if most comfortable is the word or just like to run the most. So we, we run into the, uh, the situation now and again where the sandbox can become a little more of a travelogue than it is a participatory game. And, uh, tips and tricks for avoiding the travelogue syndrome, I think is our topic, unless I've got it wrong. Right. Unless I missed it. Um, you've got it completely right. So it is often my modus operandi, uh, to try and come up with new terms in order to codify and explain and communicate things that uh, some uh, GMs are already doing intuitively in order to be able to teach them to other people who are not. Because right. as you suggest, so let's uh, step back a bit and define our, our usual ter- A sandbox game, as you suggest, is one in which there's an environment that the uh, player characters are interacting with and they go around poking things and eventually they... Uh, poke enough things that it turns into a, a, plot. a plot, or maybe not. Out. Yeah, maybe it's just a series of picaresque noodlings about, and then the uh, the weird encounter of, of the week or what have you. But uh, whether whichever one you're doing, whether you're moving toward a mission that the players themselves discover and define, or um, noodling around, the drawback, as you also suggest, of sandbox play is that often it can seem kind of passive. Is that especially in a in a rich and complex world like the world of Glorantha, for which I am writing the Big Rubble campaign uh, set, or the world of Earth, for which I have written a number of books as well? Yes, <laughs> uh, that you can uh, get into a situation where you are just kind of watching stuff happen. So, in a game uh, set in in the Old West. You might just, you know, wind up in Tombstone and you might just be introduced to all the actual important people and 
not have a reason to join in the gunfight. Or in uh, you know a, a fantasy world, you may see the the great parade of the temple lotus cult uh, come by and not be given a reason to interact with that. And so the the term that I have come up with for the purpose of the GMing section in the Big Rubble is activity prompt. And that any encounter or situation that you present, whether it is a, a big old plot hook that will drive many sessions of play or just a weird thing that they encounter while scrabbling around in the rocks, I'm encouraging GMs to think of them as an activity prompt in order to, guess what, Ken? Prompt, prompt activity? activity. Yeah. Yeah. No flies on me. Yeah. And so the, the mental leap that I think it is useful to make when you are running a sandbox game is whenever you present uh, the players with, uh, with something, ask yourself, what is the action that they are going to take? And ideally, what is the choice of action that they're going to take? Um, now, I say ideally because there are times... When for pacing reasons, you just want to have something happen. Yeah. And so it's like a meteor falls from the sky, uh, lands on that village over there, and it's on fire. Um, now, there's already a choice implicit in that, right? That you yeah. can, we can watch the village burn. We can run away. Or we can try and set out the fire. We can try and rescue people. What do we do? We can try and um, steal and cool so, meteor stuff. Yeah. And so there's already uh, more than, if there's more than one possible action that the players might undertake. Voila, you, that meteor is an activity prompt. It prompts you to do something. So the, the next question is, what if they choose to do nothing? Are there consequences for that? And uh, since this is a leading question, of course, yeah. uh, there will always be consequences for doing nothing. Uh, you don't have a null answer when there's an activity prompt that if you decide to slink away from the village that is on fire because a meteor landed on it, someone will spot you and go, those are the, the punks that ran away from the meteor. And then later when you're in the tavern, you'll realize that your reputation has been damaged. And now guess what? The discovery that your reputation has been damaged is, Ken, say it along with me. An activity prompt. An activity prompt. Uh, because now you have uh, a situation that, again, you can respond to in one way or the other. It's like, well, we can lean into the idea that we're weasels. And just uh, accept that and, and, and suck it up. And no doubt there's going to be more consequences for that. Or we can go out and try to redeem ourselves. And let's, uh, if you decide to redeem yourself, let's look for, you know, the set of plot hooks that we've already generated uh, wandering around this sandbox. Or if not, let's just go out and look for something to do. And guess what? Perhaps the GM will. Let's ask friendly old Father Mulcahy, if I wanted to redeem myself, what would I do? And he says, well, you'd stop those darn criminals from stealing all the trucks or whatever. Yeah. And you'll say, I just wanted to do rosaries. And he will say, is that an activity prompt? Is that an activity prompt? I ask you. I mean, sure, the rosary minigame is fun and compelling, but that's not the reason <laughs> to just do that. Yeah. There's more things going. I would have said, uh, by the way, that the people in the village come back as fire ghosts and haunt your dreams. But yeah, being called a coward is also good. Uh, yes, there's, there's any number of things. And when you start to think of these situations not as just a thing that you're observing about the world, but an invitation to interact with something. So if you have something that you want to present uh, about the world, so uh, let's say, Ken, let's go back to your favorite world, Earth, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, let's say they're uh, moving through the Holy Roman Empire. What is uh, something that you want to present to the uh, players to teach them about the Holy Roman Empire, what would they what would they see or encounter? I mean, I think uh, if you if if you want to teach them about the Holy Roman Empire, there's there's two sort of very classic 
places where the Holy Roman Empire impinges itself on your consciousness. One is, are you trying to move along a river or road in the Holy Roman Empire? Because every time you try, some jerk with a stick is demanding a road tax from you. And that is not so much an activity prompt, but the fifth time it happens, maybe you're, you've, you've got, you're out of silver pieces. Now it's time to start beating people up with sticks. And you've discovered why the Holy Roman Empire was so obsessed with taxation and why it could never collect any. Right. Uh, the other thing, if they're higher. Well, well, just before you move on to the other thing, right, let's, right, right. let's stop and unpack that a bit. Right. Yeah. So um, you uh, jumped ahead to the part of the story where the activity is not to just do something boring like pay the tax. Right. Right. That It's not uh, an activity prompt. It's just a thing you are observing if you can easily solve the problem in a sensible way right. that isn't doesn't lead anywhere. It's just a matter of, well, we budgeted 55 marks just for taxes. Let's pay the taxes right. and move on. The real excitement uh, comes when we get our load of blue cloth to Frankfurt. Yes, exactly. And so that required tweaking the encounter so that there is a reason why you don't want to do that. Or another, and there's an infinite number of other ways to suggest that. Uh, so it doesn't just have to be, oh, we don't want to pay the tax. So we have a fight with the tax collector. It could be you notice figures skulking, looking at the tax collectors, uh, and you figure they're going to ambush the tax collectors. Do you? Or you meet a smuggler on the road who's like, oh, are you paying the tax like a chump? I could yeah. beat that for a mere right. 30 marks. Right. And so these are all, so now we have like three different uh, reasons why something that was just a flat detail of encountering the world, uh, what is, is now an activity prompt that uh, possibly leads you somewhere and uh, creates an interesting thing. Because otherwise you can just... Now, you could still cover that. If the real fun is in the city, you can just say, well, and of course, uh, as uh, seasoned veterans of the Holy Roman Empire, you are cadged for your river taxes five times along the way, but you expected that and you paid the river taxes and now you're in the city, right? Yes. So the, the point here is not to obligate you to turn every single possible detail Right. It's not to pixel bitch the setting. Right. right. But rather, if there is something that you think is going to be interesting or that you want to be interesting, this is how you do that. So you had a second Holy Roman Empire. Right. In the second is uh, you attend one of the imperial elections when they uh, the, the, the old emperor is dead and they're, they're uh, all getting together to vote. And then you recognize how ridiculous it is a way to set up where you got one guy who runs a tiny little castle. But because his great grandfather was important, he gets to cast a vote just like the entire city of Cologne gets to cast a vote or whatever. And. Uh, that can be, you're just there to, uh, watch the, the, the draperies and the, and the, and the parades and the, and the pomp. Or it may be that you're an actual political maneuverer and you're trying to get your choice, the Vittelsbach on the throne, not those jerk Habsburgs or whatever it is. And so you're thrust into the, into the dickering and, and dealing with people. And because some of them are very, very petty lords, in addition to being very petty humans, they may have problems that a group of six uh, roustabouts can solve as opposed to, I want Poland to stop being mean, which is a bigger problem uh, generally than six roustabouts can solve. Right. So that second option, which is that you are involved already in uh, the the election and in politics, that is already a plot hook. Yeah. Uh, and a plot hook is always an activity prompt, but right. not... Uh, it's an activity prompt that is already prompted. Yes. It's yeah. already fully laid out. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, the uh, first thing you said was maybe you're just there to look at the draperies and the parades. And of course, that is the example of the uh, passive thing that we need to turn into an activity. Project. The perfect travelogue experience. 
Yes. yes. Um, and so we're turn, trying to turn a, a, a sightseeing into uh, an activity prompt. And so um, obviously the uh, e easy thing to do is to just borrow something from column B and say, well, uh, one of the electors uh, looks at you and goes, those are exactly the kind of roustabouts I need to go and uh, in intimidate this other elector or filch some of the uh, taxes and, and put them on his person so that he is so reframing him or, or uh, whatever. Or whatever. So beyond that obvious thing, uh, what would be other uh, things that could turn into action at the, uh, at, at the election? I mean, one of the things that you could, um, I mean, and many player characters, and I don't mean this in a bad way, are uh, moral sewers. And so... <laughs> Um, yeah, that's merely descriptive. I think we could stipulate that. Right. And and so you see all this money and furs and rich people hanging out. And of course, uh, many player groups would think this is a heist. We're, we're going to have a heist. We're going to steal the court robes. And if we do it from someone who needs them to appear and we've screwed up their election, now we've got a guy who can bankro bankroll our theft because his rival will have to show up in second best court robes that his brother right. had. Because this is Earth where, uh, if, uh, in a pre-industrial society, where clothing, uh, fine clothing, is uh, one of the most expensive treasures you can Absolutely. Possibly, it's it's, it's uh, big yeah. money. It's, um, uh, it's very expensive. And stealing that specific kind of clothing uh, creates a political consequence as well as just a look at all this cloth of gold we can sell consequence. And then, of course, when you add uh, uh, make them up elements to your uh, thing. You can be while you're watching the parade and, uh, you know, as someone who uh, has a rod of werewolf detection from a previous uh, scenario. And, it, and why would you do that? Because you're werewolf hunters. And right. then you, you know, you see, well, one of the electors is a werewolf. Well, you don't care what happens politically, but you do want to get to that guy and, and uh, you know, deal with him as, as one does with lycanthropes. Right. And, but of course, the... <laughs> Uh, the, the obstacles there are that uh, you he's know rich and powerful. he's rich and powerful, and there's a big event that he's at, and mm -hmm. how do you get him away from that in order to uh, give him the old werewolf bushwhacking? Yeah. And another and so, another thing is um, you can use it as you can use a travelogue moment as a place to provide other more standard kinds of hooks. So if you're seeing a big parade of dignitaries, um, as you say, one of them can say that's the kind of ruffians I need, but you can also look at them and say that guy looks like a soft touch. Let's go see if he needs ruffians. Um, and, uh, you may have, or have heard that one of these nobles, uh, is a, a collector of alchemy books. And so it's like, oh, that's, um, uh, that's, um, uh, Lord Maximilian. He collects alchemy books and player characters will think, can we rob Lord Maximilian? Can we do a favor for him so we can look at his library? Can we sell him our fake alchemy book? And all of that provides you a possible, uh, way of interacting, uh, with, uh, this elevated noble who, um, you might not have had a reason to say, welcome to Frankfurt, where Lord Maximilian collects alchemy books. But if you're looking at a parade, it's natural to do a little play-by-play. -play, and then you can drop hooks on everyone that comes by. Oh, Lord Maximilian, he collects alchemy books. Oh, that's Lord Rudolph of Hesse-Castle. Um, uh, he uh, looks, his, his eyebrows have grown together and his fingers are all the same length. That's weird. Um, and then, oh, that's Duke Sigismund. He's from Transylvania. Um, he's probably nothing wrong with him at all. And then you just keep going and you, and you list everybody. And all of them have are just dangling with activity prompts and plot hooks because they're uh, rich, famous people, which means that they are dangerous and exciting. Right. And a part of this comes down to the um, in uh, uh, card magic. Uh, there is a, a standard move called a force right. where you say pick a card, any card, and, and the uh, sleight of hand artist 
is very uh, carefully and subtly moving uh, one card into your hand so that you think you've picked the one that they have forced you to take. And the question here is how proactive are your players really as opposed to how proactive do they think they are? Because I think all players want to think of themselves as being eager gatherers and picker-uppers of activity prompts and plot hooks uh, when that is not always necessarily the case. So uh, <laughs> some of them uh, genuinely wish to not be hinted at at all and to be able to look at the crowd of uh, ones and go, well, is there someone there who collects alchemy books? And then you, as GM, follow their proactive uh, force to you and say, why, yes, of course, it's Sigismund and he's over there and he's the one with the mean-looking owl uh, mm -hmm. with the blood on its beak from pecking people who have come after its alchemy books. And so there you go. The player has basically asked for an activity, a customized activity prompt, which you have supplied. Mm -hmm. um, more often, however, uh, you will be sort of couching these things in a way that uh, suggests that there's a, a mission or an idea that you have. And the difference between this and a uh, more standard mission-based uh, setup is that you're presenting them with a whole bunch of possible missions and whichever one they pick is the one that you improvise your adventure around. Right. Whereas in a straight up mission style, you just say, well, you're in the village at the conclave today to look for Sigismund, who's a, a collector of alchemy books, because you know that one of his alchemy books has achieved sapience and you've got to get it away from him before uh, the, uh, the hole in the earth opens up. And also, yes, look out for his pecky owl. Yeah. And so both of those lead to an encounter with the pecky owl, but in one of them, you're just deciding because it's a mission. And in another one, that's just one of the vast smorgasbord of possible activity prompts that the, uh, that the players could pick up on and turn into uh, something. So uh, the, the activity prompt in a way is sort of your, your dinosaur that your plastic dinosaur that's buried under the sand. Uh, but uh, it's a plastic dinosaur. That's going to give you a choice, give you an option. Uh, it can give you a problem. It can give you an opportunity, give you a probability. Uh, but it's something that uh, is directly uh, an interaction rather than a cutscene that you're just watching. And and, and where that, that line lies is very much dependent on your player group. Because with some player groups, you can literally just say, it's a parade of nobles, and they will say, um, you know, here are our activities that we want to do. With other groups, you need to lay it out and get all the way down to, while you're in the tavern that night, you see the Prince of Thieves of Frankfurt say, I, what I wouldn't give for six roustabouts who could steal me an alchemy book from a pecky owl, and then that becomes a full mission. But players are all over that middle spectrum all the time in, in my Hellenistic And they can game, be different from one week to the next, depending right. on how exactly. engaged they are and how awake they are. Right. Uh, in, in my Hellenistic game, I wanted to do the rodeo in Kapisa, and, um, which is in Afghanistan. It's basically where Kabul is. And, uh, that the player characters. Was that the first rodeo? It, it, it's, it, it's their first rodeo, most of them. Um, actually we had a brief decision as to how many characters were at their first rodeo, but, uh, my player characters being my player characters, their response was let's rob all the rich people. Um, but another group of player characters might've been let's win all the prizes at the rodeo. And, um, uh, and, and both of those are valid responses to the presence of a big Hellenistic rodeo. But once my players are like, we're going to rob all the rich people, I know what we're going to do at the setting and I can start leading the activity prompts to, to give them their, their submissions or whatever and, and work it out so that they, once they know that they are like, okay, we're going to have to bribe the astrologers so that anytime someone comes up to ask the astrologers what horse to bet on, they're told be, be sure to do these other things that will set up 
a cool thing that you want to do. So it, it, it's a system where you, ideally you're in an ecosystem where you're providing an activity prompt. The players grab onto it. It becomes a full plot hook. They tug on it, generating more activity prompts that it's never a sort of a stochastic, you know, here's a bunch of activity prompts. Do one of them. Here's a bunch of right. activity prompts. Do one and, of them. And if you're at a monastery where they've told you to find uh, Aristotle's last book on comedy, you know you're in an Umberto ecosystem. Hello. Which warns you to get the heck out of this segment. Because you're going to be poisoned. And move on to the next one. You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires and got burned. You're all alone against them. One player, one game master. Create your own agent or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one rules designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. All alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knights Black Agents Solo Ops. At your security cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. The red carpet is out. The gold statues are coming our way because the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has moved up the date for the Oscars once again, meaning that we have to do our movie top tens, our traditional run-throughs of the uh, movies of uh, 2019 a little sooner than usual. I think uh, pretty soon they're going to move the Oscars up until they just squish the Golden Globes into a paste, and then after that they'll start uh, giving them out before they even open up voting. Uh, and so uh, we, as mere humans, of course, do not do our top ten at the uh, end of the year in the Cinema Hut, but rather a few months later to give ourselves more time to actually see things because we don't get advanced press passes. We gotta we gotta see stuff uh, sort of higgledy piggledy. Uh, and in even- this case, a few months is actually a few weeks. It's not even uh, as much time as we normally have, uh, press passes and higgledy-piggledy notwithstanding. So- yes, uh, due, due to uh, travel and so forth, we're, we're actually even doing this uh, sooner than usual. But I don't know about you, Ken, but I've had no shortage of films to compete for the top slot. I'm looking at them here, and basically one through eight on my list, I all gave pinnacle ratings to, <laughs> meaning they're five stars. So basically... I say this every year, but this is even truer than usual, that the order in which I list these is essentially arbitrary and would be different on any other given day. But uh, it's always a good year for film if you know where to look, right? Right. Yes. No, absolutely. Um, uh, but it does help if uh, the studios have done their sh- their part and uh, put out some good films for us to look at. And I think that we have... Few to no grounds for complaint in 2019. So, uh, without uh, further ado and, and fanfare, hit us with your uh, number 10 pick for 2019. All right. I actually saw this yesterday um, at the latest show it was possible to see it at. And so, therefore, I am delighted to say that I did not waste that trip out into the cold Chicago night, but that Little Women, directed by the great and luminous Greta Gerwig, is my number 10. Um, it is a adaptation of the beloved Louisa May Alcott novel. Um, it does the interesting approach uh, of 
making it an actual ensemble piece, not making it by the great Joe Marsh and a bunch of other people. Um, but although Sarsa Ronan is sort of the central character in the ensemble uh, because the story is told by Joe, we have got heavy hitters like Emma Watson as Meg, Florence Pugh as Amy, and the great Laura Dern as Marmee, the mother. So the it's a true ensemble piece. Greta Gerwig is an actor's director, I think, by choice and by inclination. And when you get this great cast to act, when Meryl Streep is literally just sort of showing up and not acting everyone off the plate and coming back out again, you know you're up to something. And uh, Little Women is terrific. It does an, a, a great job of... of pulling out all the emotions of, of that great novel and uh, just a, a hellfire of an acting show while also being just as, as good and uh, women centric and true to life as you could possibly want from a movie made in 2019. My number 10 is uh, Jojo rabbit, uh, Taika Waititi's satirical adaptation of a serious novel about uh, a world war two featuring a young character who really wants to be, a fervent devotee of the Hitler youth, but uh, when he discovers uh, a girl that his uh, mother is hiding in the attic, uh, discovers uh, somewhat to his confusion and especially the dismay of his imaginary friend Adolf Hitler, played by Taika Waititi, that uh, he has a little more humanity than he knows what to do with. And uh, I uh, have picked this film on the uh, grounds of its filmmaking bravura. It takes you someplace uh, that you're not necessarily uh, sure you want to go, but I think laudably uh, depicts uh, the uh, Nazi movement in its uh, dying days as the Allies close in as losers and 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 fools and idiots, and uh, they they can still be terrifying and do terrible things uh, in a way that sort of reminds me of the way that evil is depicted in Terry Gilliam's uh, Brazil. But uh, it's something that uh, with the use of uh, newer pop music and just sort of uh, Watiti's uh, energy and uh, and uh, cinematic uh, flair pulls off uh, something that uh, in lesser hands uh, would have been terrible or life is beautiful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you repeat yourself. I yes. have not I have not seen Jojo Rabbit yet. I expect I will pick it up later. But it and I never, never uh, linked orbits. Number nine, Ken. What's your number nine film? My number nine is the film Bring Me Home, directed by Kim Sung-woo. Uh, I don't believe that you can have a top 10 in 2019 that is worth listening to unless there is at least one Korean film in it. And this is my first Korean film, he said, spoiling nothing for people who <laughs> know said, anything about movies. foreshadowingly. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, Bring Me Home is uh, a film about a woman who believes that her uh, son has been abducted and goes to the extreme lengths possible in Korean cinema to find him. And the harrowing journey that she undertakes is never made unharrowing by director or script or music or cinematography. It is a pure descent and a pure thriller of nemesis. And it is uh, just gripping edge of the seat without ever being false or uh, meretricious or in fact comforting. So it's, it's a, it's a great movie in the tradition of great Korean uh, emotional thrillers and yeah, when I saw it, I was, I, I, I probably said out loud in my mouth, I would like to see a Korean film do better than that. And then, you know, it turned out I did. Uh, yes, that's, it's an exceptionally ruthless, uh, thriller that, uh, is, uh, not too uh, not too concerned with niceties in uh, no. in the way that it grabs you by the throat. Uh, this is the point where we have to do our annual footnote, where Ken Rebel that he is 
will um, add things to his list that have not been released yet because he saw them at a film festival. Because often they're never released, like with Soul on a String. Number nine is uh, Hustlers, uh, Louis Ferrier's Womano-centric crime uh, drama slash regular drama about a, a group of uh, uh, strippers uh, in a club that uh, caters to a Wall Street clientele that after the downturn decides they uh, they need a little extra cash and uh, start uh, fleecing the customers uh, by turning it into a good old-fashioned clip joint, reviving an older American tradition of the club where you come in, uh, drink yourself silly, in this case with the aid of Rohypnol, and uh, get your credit card uh, swiped. And uh, both uh, uh, Jennifer Lopez, uh, who is uh, uh, luminous and, and maternal and mercenary in this and is really, uh, and also delivers an incredible physical performance. Uh, and uh, Constance Wu as the sort of uh, viewpoint character who comes into that world and experiences it. It is written on a sort of a Scorsesean structure, which is not surprising given that Scorsese originally was commissioned just to write it with the hope that Scorsese would direct, and then she wound up directing it. But that's all to the good because for a movie about the world of stripping, it very consciously through its cinematography sets out to neutralize the male gaze. There's one shot that is uh, from the point of view of a man uh, looking at these women and it uh, in I think an interesting little tribute is all in red, just like uh, Scorsese's uh, earlier uh, films tended to be have these all red scenes that were then borrowed from uh, from Michael Powell. So the deep part of the crime drama uh, tradition, yet also uh, fresh and exciting. And uh, I did not rank it a pinnacle when I first saw it, but I think in my mind it has grown. And I might say that there's Nine pinnacles on this list. Yeah. Uh, Ken, your number eight choice. Um, I will say that uh, Sheila saw Hustlers and liked it very much, but I did not go with her that uh, afternoon. Um, so there you go. Well, I, I can see why she would be uh, going to see something about slipping uh, slipping something in somebody's drink. Yes, and then um, uh, carrying off a crime of some sort. Anyway, my number eight is the second film by the guy who made It Follows and David Robert Mitchell. And it is called Under the Silver Lake. It uh, came and went in the theaters. It's on Amazon streaming now, I think. Um, it is the Unknown Armiesist movie that I have seen in a good long time. So I was predisposed to be uh, a, a fan of it. Uh, Andrew Garfield plays a complete waste of time and human skin. So it is ideally cast. And it is about the occult uh, mysteries of Los Angeles and the occult mysteries of not actually knowing where you are in the universe. And so it, it doesn't quite uh, stick the landing, but I don't think anything could. And it has in the songwriter scene, which I will forbear from spoiling, possibly the best scene about pop culture ever filmed. Um, it is a movie that I, uh, like you say, um, I have uh, found myself returning to in my thoughts uh, ever since I've seen it. Um, and I, I really uh, liked it better every time I thought about it. So Under the Silver Lake has been sort of moving up my estimation until it came to rest at number eight. Whereas I actively noped out of it and therefore cannot argue the point uh, because I disliked what I saw so much that I stopped watching. You noped out of it twice, I believe you, you told me. So, yeah. Um, my number eight is 
Speaking of unlikely uh, titles, Jim Jarmusch's zombie film, The Dead Don't Die, in which uh, small-town cops, uh, Bill Murray, Adam Driver, and Chloe Savini, try to keep it together after a zombie apocalypse caused by a polar fracking. And it's sort of a deceptively ramshackle film, but nonetheless something that I found uh, riveting and transporting, and I think in epitome of what we will look back on later, one hopes, uh, as, <laughs> uh, as the cinema of the Trump era, that it is about um, sort of being paralyzed, unable to know what to do, knowing everything is going to a handbasket in this case. Uh, and the uh, the climate change metaphor is not a metaphor. It's not subtext, it's text. <laughs> and the despair of knowing what's going to happen and having only a, a, a still trying to fight, but knowing you're probably uh, uh, going to lose. And uh, you wouldn't think that Jarmusch and zombies would go together, even though Jarmusch and vampires go together. We know that from uh, Only Lovers Left Alive. But uh, I uh, found that. And certainly it was uh, a film that received a, a mixed reception, but I am all in for. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I think, in my 13th best film of the year, and not through any great flaw of its, I think that I um, responded to it more in the sort of negative space. Uh, I, I loved, obviously, the positive space, Adam Driver, Bill Murray, the, the cast goes on and on. Not a not a bad performance, not a bad shot. Um, but the notion of Jim Jarmusch gesturing without result is so weird to me that if you're a big Jarmusch head and you watch this and think of all of his other films, the fact that emotional steps are made and not completed, that a thing happens that is not paid off and that it is all done deliberately is scarier than any of the zombies in the film that Jarmusch exactly, is literally yes. making a film about the edge of things. It's truly about despair. Yeah. It's, it, it's a, it, it'll mess you up when you see it. And it is, it is very, very good. It is just, it, it just doesn't quite hit the filmmaking peak for me of say Patterson or some of his other films again, because I think he made the conscious decision to leave it emotionally and importantly unfinished in a lot of ways. And so I, I really liked it. I, I agree with you. It's a terrific film. It just did not quite crack the top 10 for me. Uh, well, it was uh, in, in a great year for film. There can be some uh, really amazing things in your 11 to 20 slot too. Yep. Uh, but what I want to know about now is your number seven slot. I think you do want to know about it. And in fact, this is probably because, you uh, rated it so very highly coming out of t TIFF that I made sure to go see it in the theaters, and I do not regret it a second because my number seven is another film uh, from uh, our friends overseas. This is a Chinese film by Zhang Yimou, Shadow, which is a almost Shakespearean level in terms both of abstraction and in terms of sort of uh, core personality types of rivalry and uh, machinations in sort of the autumn uh, period in, in Chinese history, the three final kingdoms coming down to it. It's a martial arts film, but it's also just a tremendous example of what cinematography, production design, and fight choreography can accomplish if they're all directed by one genius. And over and above the sort of not simplistic, but elemental story is the, the technical qualifications of the, of the film. It's just an amazing movie. Um, you, you can't not uh, be impressed by it. You can't not be moved by it and it's technical perfection on every level. So shadow is my number seven. Uh, longtime listeners to this uh, annual tradition will know what happens when one of us doesn't respond to the other's choice. <laughs> uh, my number seven choice is the perfection. Uh, any list, any top 10 list is going to have 
uh, an obscurity in it that most people haven't seen. And boy, most people have not seen this straight to Netflix feature that came out in the spring. Uh, Horror Twitter was very excited about it for a weekend. But I think because of the nature of uh, streaming platforms and our cinematic attention span uh, and the fact that you can't explain why you have to see this film without ruining it, <laughs> I think uh, causes it to have been uh, sort of disappeared from the, the radar. But it's uh, a Netflix movie, so it is not only on Netflix now, I guess it will always be on Netflix. And Netflix is the only way to see it. Uh, and this is not the kind of film that got the theatrical rollouts that some of their uh, prestige uh, uh, films did. This is, uh, anyway, this is directed by Richard Shepard. And this is a film that changes its skin a whole bunch of times before revealing uh, what it really is and, and does so quite dramatically, stylistically. It seems like a, a Serkian melodrama at one point, and then it's even spoilery to say that it gets Cronenbergy for a bit, and then it turns into reality horror, and then it's something else yet again, which I won't spoil, but it uh, starts with a former cellist played by Allison Williams, who you'll know from Get Out and from Girls, who goes to a, a music competition in China and uh, meets her basically predecessor as, as the protege of this famous uh, music teacher played by uh, Stephen Weber. And she's played by Logan Browning. Uh, the, the two of them uh, hook up for a bit of glam romance. And then things get super weird and disturbing. And uh, like all of the greatest uh, horror uh, refers to something that matters in the world and, and deals with anxieties of the present in, in a way that uh, more serious treatment perhaps will not reward. And it's just one of those films that I was just slack-jawed in amazement at throughout. And uh, you, everybody slept on this pretty much. So uh, go dial it up if you're a Netflix subscriber. It was on my list of things to watch if the Oscars had not been moved ahead and if we had not had to record this ahead. But uh, like other uh, possible contenders for best film of 2019, I have to put it in my make sure to catch it later list. Yeah, a, a great film you haven't seen yet is a treat for tomorrow. Exactly. It's dessert in the cupboard. Exactly. Ken, your number six. My number six is also a Netflix original, and it is a concert film. Uh, in a great year for concert films, um, Amazing Grace, the uh, finally completed Aretha Franklin concert film, I think is my number 11. But uh, this movie is Homecoming, it's a seamless document of two back-to-back uh, -back performances at Coachella by Beyonce. Uh, the movie is directed by Beyonce and by Ed Burke, um, and it is a tour de force. If you are allowing concert films to be great, and I think anyone who's seen a great concert film knows that they are, this is just jaw dropping and you don't have to be a gigantic Beyonce fan um, to, to appreciate it. She takes her catalog, remixes it, rearranges it for a marching band, basically for drum and brass and then blows through it in a amazing tribute to uh, historically black colleges, uh, an explication of the African-American experience. Every African-American musical tradition from lift every voice and sing through funk, through hip hop, through Beyonce pop, through soul. It's all in there. It's all out there. She is, you know, a legendary performer, obviously, like I have to tell the world that. And this is her concert film. And it is a masterpiece. At the end of watching it, I said, I did we just see a pinnacle? And Sheila said, well, you're the person with the column, but yeah, 
So it, it's, it was a pinnacle when I rated it, and it's a pinnacle when I think back on it, and it turned out to be my number six. My number six, uh, also pinnacle, because we're well into pinnacle territory by now, is Uncut Gems uh, by Josh and Benny Safdie, uh, which features uh, Adam Sandler uh, in uh, a, not a surprising dramatic turn, because he does those uh, every so often, but nonetheless a brilliant one, and brilliant in a way that it makes its protagonist, who is the most annoying person in the world. Someone calls him that and you <laughs> nod. Uh, yep. Yes, that is correct. Yet you also sympathize with him throughout, despite the incredibly uh, self-destructive behavior that he undertakes as a, a skeezy jewel dealer uh, and a self-destructively uh, degenerate gambler uh, in New York City. It's one of those uh, few hours in the life of uh, spiral into disaster movies. Uh, I, its closest spiritual cousin, I'd say, would be Bad Lieutenant, and uh, the the sense of immediacy of the film, especially with Daniel Lopatin's uh, score, which is this sort of bubbling. Uh, you know, it's basically uh, New Age has a mental breakdown music, <laughs> uh, and it's basically you're listening to his neurochemistry, and in one scene, I guess the neurochemistry of his his girlfriend. But it's just. Uh, a, uh, one of those films is just a, a series of punches in the heart all the way through and incredibly uh, vivid and spectacularly realized. I, I read I, I read somewhere that Safdie said that the score is in case the movie gets too intense and you close your eyes, you'll still be watching the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. And those guys are, are have, were making the rounds in a, in a weirdly fruitless bid to get some Oscar attention. But uh, they're also a, a very uh, charming uh, pair if you get to see them uh, interviewed together. And, Oscar uh, is a jerk. Only Ken and Robin are your, are your male single name guides to film. And I, I should uh, tap my chin knowingly to indicate that perhaps Uncut Gems is not done with us. Yes. Uh, but I, speaking of Oscar being a jerk, uh, there's a gold-headed man out in the lobby who's uh, raising a ruckus. So we're going to go and remonstrate with him while you listen to this commercial. And then we'll be back with Ken's number five choice. The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on DriveThru. Make the right choice on a crucial action prompt by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Chad Ward. Dan Simons. Neil Dalton. Neil Kaplan. And Liz and Siski. Okay, so it turned out 
that uh, the man in the gold suit uh, was uh, actually kind of reasonable. Uh, now that we've uh, settled back into the uh, plush seats of the cinema hut, uh, he's not going to disrupt the rest of the podcast. And uh, therefore, I can ask you, Ken, uh, what your number five choice was. My number five choice is a, another film that I saw at Chicago Film Festival. It was Australia's entry for Best International Feature Film at the Academy Awards, but the Academy, in its timeless stupidity, rejected it. It is Buoyancy, directed by Rod Rathjen, and this a film shot, uh, filmed entirely in Khmer and uh, Burmese. There's no English in it at all. It is a film about a young boy who leaves Cambodia, where he has no life and no future, to get human trafficked on the sea by Thai uh, fishermen. And the the situation is not good. Uh, none of it is good. But the film unfolds less as a social problem film and more as a Jack London sea story with none of the um, sort of uh, happy-go-lucky qualities that one assumes a Jack London sea story would have if one has never read Jack London. And so uh, it is a great sea story. It is of, of a genre that you don't see maybe as much as you should, uh, but it is uh, the the harshness of nature, the cruelty of man, and the indomitable human spirit of our protagonist. And they all collide repeatedly and excitingly and bloodily. It has... Just a, an amazing sound design. Uh, the score, the creaking boat, and the water all flow back and forth into each other. Uh, the the editing is superb. You're you're uh, you lose your sense of time just as uh, our hero um, uh, Chakra does, and uh, it, it it is an immersive experience and an experience that should terrify the hell out of you and make you think maybe I'll buy domestically farm raised shrimp for a while. <laughs> yes, the question of how much slavery is in your shrimp. <laughs> yeah, how much slavery do I want my shrimp to have in it? But anyway, it is an amazing movie. It is well worth seeing if it comes out in some sort of bizarre way next year, or if the Australians just take their bat and ball and go home, uh, justifiably angry that their great film was uh, snubbed by the Oscars. Uh, try and try and check it out if you can. Uh, my number five film is the first, but not the last of our aforementioned titles, Shadow, Zhang Yimou, uh, in which uh, a, a commoner trained to pose as a secretly wounded general defies his king, uh, and he uh, prepares for a, a, a deadly uh, and politically destabilizing duel uh, that has uh, stately court intrigue in a, a monochrome that resembles ink watercolors. So at first everything is black and white, and then later it becomes red all over. Yeah. When it shifts into outlandish wuxia action mode, and uh, there are scenes in it where, again, it's like, what? Am I watching this? Is this thing happening? And again, I'm not going to tell you what that is, but when you see it, you'll know. Mm -hmm. So it sort of fuses the two halves of, uh, of uh, Zhang's filmmaking and uh, is uh, a, a masterpiece to go along with uh, Hero and House of Flying Daggers. Ken, your number four slot. My number four slot is a film that I managed to see on the big screen, although now you get to see it on Netflix like everybody else. It is Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. And, uh, yep, it's absolutely, it's the, it's the basic 
white wine spritzer and avocado toast of film criticism. But you know what? Scorsese is a great damn director. This is a great damn film. Uh, it is the story uh, based on the memoir, I Heard You Paint Houses, about a Boston hitman named, I'm not a Boston hitman, I think he's a Philadelphia hitman, named Frank Sheeran, and his adventures at the side of Jimmy Hoffa and at the behest of mobster Russell Buffalino. And playing mobster Russell Buffalino is Joe Pesci, who Scorsese uh, got to come out of retirement. And Joe Pesci is... A, a revelation. I mean, we all love Joe Pesci. We've always all loved Joe Pesci, but here he is the voice of calm reason and patient <laughs> and, and resignation. That's what we wanted from which Pesci. Which is not where you would have put Joe Pesci in your heart or in your life, but I'm here to tell you he's an amazing actor. He does an amazing job and the film does an even more amazing job of presenting all of the characters and then never looking away, just showing you what you're seeing and then still showing you and it is it had to be that long people who say it's over long are um simpletons i will say pacino is actually reined in by scorsese so that his hoffa is exactly larger than life which is where it ought to be and of course de niro bothers to act which when he does it is amazing and it's you know i don't blame him for not bothering to do it he's got material that justifies it exactly but what a guy and what a job it's you know it's a it's a it's a it's a slam dunk. It's a one yard uh, rush from the goal line. It's all those things, but it's also a, a pinnacle and a masterpiece. And I was giddy for a week after seeing it in the theater. It was that good. My number four title is High Life uh, from Claire Denis, her first English language feature. And it's a science fiction movie set on a uh, a prison uh, ship in which uh, Robert Pattinson and uh, Juliet Binoche, among others, have been uh, sent off into space as a punishment for their uh, crimes, which we learn about in flashback. And it has sort of a Kubrickian chill about it, yet also a a real sense of humanity, particularly brought uh, to the fore by Pattinson's uh, relationship with a young uh, child that he winds up raising uh, from infancy on this ship as it goes further and further off into the horizon. There are some uh, visual sequences that are quite stunning, but otherwise sort of the, the... I can't think of another science fiction film that has an undertone of weird horror beneath it without actually being science horror. And as I said, a brilliant human performances uh, anchoring this uh, quite ultimately uh, both beautiful and uh, disturbing uh, film. Yeah. High Life is another one of the ones that I would have gotten to. It's on Amazon streaming now, which is probably not the way to see it. But that's how I would have seen it, and it's certainly on my list to, to catch uh, in the what would have been our run-up to the Oscars. Right. Well, realistically, it's how almost everybody's going to see it, so just mm-hmm. don't watch it on your phone. Watch it on your big TV. Yep, exactly. Uh, Ken, your number three. My number three is a little something that I like to call Uncut Gems, directed by the Safdie brothers, as previously stated in this space. Adam Sandler, again, if you saw Punch Drunk Love, you know that he's a terrific actor when he's given uh, strong material and a good director. Once more, he's a terrific actor, and I think that in this case, uh, unlike in Punch Drunk Love, he brings more of his comic self, his comedian self. Uh, Comedians always make the best villains. Uh, This goes back to Shakespeare. Shakespeare cast the clown as Iago in Othello, and as uh, you've never looked back. And so when you can get a comedian who plays a thoroughgoing (laughs) bad person the way that uh, our hero is, uh, he can really let it go. So the reserves of ego and loathing and comic timing that Sandler brings to the part 
are not wasted. Everything's up there on screen. And I just want to give a shout out to how great a job the film does with the milieu, the, the world of the diamond trade in Manhattan is so strange and recondite and messed up and hermetic and odd. The world of high level sports betting, likewise brought together in a perfect way. And then I don't know who at ESPN or who at the uh, NBA had to be murdered to make this happen, but murder more people because the ability to take footage from actual basketball games and put them into a film about seedy, horrible people gambling on basketball. I can't even believe it. And of course the great Kevin Garnett playing himself He's he's good. He's actually. I, I think he may have also played a role in the uh, rights uh, agreement there. He may he may have been a big part of that phone call. Yeah, but he's he's really good. It's not that he's an inert block around which the movie rotates. And he's, he's willing present. to play an, an unflattering version of himself. He's yeah. He's willing to play a, a, a sort of a, a a negative version of himself. And so it's a bold choice for Kevin Garnett. Um, it's a great movie, and. You know, it's, it manages to sort of take, in addition to being a, a sort of a, 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 everything goes wrong movie and a scam movie. It's also kind of a great sports movie in its own weird and, and magical way. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just an amazing experience, but I wanted to, because you already shouted out all the other great stuff. I wanted to give a, a shout out to, to KG and to the, and to the world of the film, which is so beautifully pulled together. And it's not until weeks after that you realize you can't be having Passover during the NBA finals that the timing doesn't work. But other than that, it's, it's great. It's amazing. And uh, I guess the theme emerging from my list here is uh, Netflix uh, punching above its weight. <laughs> my uh, number three, three choice is Marriage Story by Noah Baumbach, starring uh, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson as a couple. Uh, she, an actress who he has sort of unwittingly in his egotism kind of uh, uh, stifled. And uh, he is a, a theatrical director who kind of reshaped her career after an opening bid in Hollywood, but she decides that uh, there's not enough oxygen for her in their relationship and uh, asks for a divorce. And it's about the process of them uh, trying to keep it amicable, but there's a kid involved and there's a question of which coast they live on. And uh, it all goes uh, terribly sideways the way the whole system is structured to make it go. But the remarkable thing about it is, is the, not just the strength of their performances and the uh, power of the writing, both of which are there in spades, and also uh, for sure the secret weapon of having a Randy Newman score, uh, but also uh, that just every scene, uh, unlike your typical naturalistic drama, is a spectacular set piece scene, not visually spectacular, not in uh, terms of the size of it, but there's everything is a big memorable moment. And the way that it's told sort of elliptically, just sort of following their divorce over its course means that only the emotional high uh, points are covered, but just everything, everything you're seeing at any moment is a, uh, is an Oscar clip uh, moment and not in the sense of being over the top or melodramatic as you negatively sometimes think when you, Oh, there's the Oscar clip, but just uh, it's just shows that you can be, masterful in your control of your cinema while still doing a small human story where their stakes are about what happens to three people. Yep. Adam Driver is great in everything. I'm sure he's great in this, but I came home from seeing Greta Gerwig's film and I was like, I'm not going to watch her baby daddy's film and bum me out after my 
Little Women High. So I did not do that. Sorry, uh, Noah Baumbach. I'll get to you in the new year. Right. And, and it's not actually a depressing film, even though it's very sad in yeah. many parts. Parts. Good to know. Uh, so your number two, Ken. My number two is a movie that I originally rated as uh, recommended and said that if it were longer, it would get a pinnacle. And then I found myself unable to stop thinking about it. And I'm still unable to stop thinking about it. And that is a sign of a film that has got its hooks in me. As you know, Robin, one of my credos is that the best Western of the year always somehow winds up in my top 10. Well, this is the best Western of the year. And it's the Western filmed by the great Quentin Tarantino, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. And, uh, I have, uh, the Blu-ray that has 20 minutes of more scenes. Uh, QT has said that the even longer full original cut version is coming later this year to some platform. I'm there for it. So sort of as a promissory note, of his full cut being released. And I uh, morally certain it will be even more amazing than the theatrical experience, which was already would have probably gotten it, you know, number eight or nine on my list. Um, I am giving once upon a time in Hollywood, my coveted number two slot. It is of course the story of fading actor, uh, Rick Dalton and his trusty sidekick and stuntman, uh, Cliff Booth and their experiences living next door to Sharon Tate in the fading years of Hollywood and the fading months of 1969. It is a love letter to the milieu. It is a glorious performance by Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate. Uh, she really is just, you know, moving from being, you know, just sort of eye candy into a really, really strong actress. And her performance here as Sharon Tate, with almost no dialogue and just being able to act physically is, is a, is a, is a revelation. She's terrific. The movie of course is full of everything Tarantino and it contains the best short horror film in another film since the devil's backbone. Uh, when Cliff goes to the spawn ranch and we see the Manson cultists front and center for the first time, quite a film going to be even better when it's four hours long. And I can't wait for that to happen. Well, the, the version of that that I saw in the theater, I thought that the, Part of it, the, the majority of the film, up until the last act, that's a Jacques Demy film, I thought was a masterpiece. And then the final act, in which it goes, ah, oh, yeah, I'm just going to do the Tarantino thing again, that knocked it uh, down uh, quite a bit. I still uh, gave it a recommended status, which I guess would be four stars, but uh, it did not make my list. And we've reached the point in the list where everybody who's listening, if you're really paying attention, can guess what the rest of us are going to say, because my number two film of the year was Parasite uh, by Bong Joon-ho, uh, a hard scrabble family uh, spinning a series of deceptions that gets them uh, infiltrated into uh, sort of a, a rich and different and sort of dissociated family. And then, uh, and then things, things get weird. Yeah. It's a beautifully Bong Joon-ho production design and music and, uh, the, the, uh, the score is amazing. And, uh, and there, it, it's one of those films where it's like, I didn't think this was where it was going. Uh, yet it all seems to still, uh, come together and, and make, uh, a thematic sense. So it has a rabbit out of the hat quality to it and, uh, speaks to, uh, the theme of inequality that is, uh, I think, ever more uh, present in the in the life of the world at this point. Uh, it is a an amazing uh, bravura feat of uh, of cinema, and uh, in a world where I didn't, re- you know, like I said before, I've got seven movies tied for first place. This could yeah. <laughs> especially easily be number one, but in right. that case, uh, I had to land it at uh, for reasons I will explain shortly. 
uh, something else just edges it out. Right. Your well, number um, one, Ken. My number one, uh, surprise, Robin, it's Parasite oh. by the great Bong Joon-ho. Everything you said is true, obviously. Uh, you're, why, when would Robin be wrong? And certainly about Parasite. I want to call out, uh, in addition to everything else that you called out, the ability to exactly and perfectly pace a film that is something you sort of don't always get, even at the very highest levels. You were just uh, complaining about uh, Tarantino's pacing. And I will say that this film is a masterclass in how to do it. I would like to also call out all the acting is great, but I think Park Sodam as uh, the daughter of the uh, the Kim family, the poor family, uh, is a revelation. And she should be starring in everything forever. Uh, she was amazing. The whole film is amazing, but she was great in a role that could have been one dimensional, but, uh, she pulled it, uh, very, very deep into a, a really interesting place. And I want to shout out to the set designer who built the house. That's not a real house. It's not a real architect. They built the house exactly for the movie. And, <laughs> and when, if you haven't seen it yet, once you do, you'll understand why they had to build a house for it. Right. But you'll also understand why I love it. And, uh, again, it, it's not it's not often enough that architecture is a core element in a, in a film. Uh, the, the film is jealous of the queen of arts and does not always give architecture her her um, uh, due. But in this film, oh, my goodness, everything about it is terrific. Obviously, it's a, it's a there, there's no decision was made badly. And uh, the set design whose name I don't know. I don't know the name of the set designer, but they were terrific. Uh, Lee Ha Jun is the production designer. So maybe maybe he's the guy. Uh, but it was it was an amazing film. Uh, and when you go in watching it, you think, oh, this is just going to be a perfect film. And then it gets even better. So finally, listeners, uh, by process of elimination, can shout along with me as I say, The Irishman by Martin Scorsese. It uh, is, in a way, sort of the career summation, although uh, thankfully one hopes not the, uh, the cap to uh, career, but certainly the, his great gangster cycle uh, basically merges uh, with his uh, spiritual films. It, there's as much uh, Kundun and the silence in The Irishman as there is uh, Goodfellas and Casino. And it's all, a, it's a film about re regret, about stillness, about memory, uh, the much vaunted uh, de-aging technology. Uh, once you buy into it is not distracting. It's not, we know what De Niro looked like at various mm -hmm. ages and uh, the process does not make him look like that. But all you need is a marker, basically, of what age they're at and a willingness to buy into that. And that's all that needs to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I'd also like to uh, mention, since I'm looking for things that Ken didn't mention, because, of course, you were also right about all of your uh, praise for it, is it's absurdist humor as well. Uh, the, yeah. th there's a conversation about a fish, for example, mm -hmm. uh, that will uh, go down in uh, cinema history. But it's also for a film that is also uh, elegiac and, and re remorseful, yet... Uh, it is also uh, very uh, funny and strange. And so because it has so many colors in it and because it is a masterwork by perhaps the greatest uh, living director, uh, I, it would, it's obvious to put it in first slot, but yep. because it's obvious, it's in first slot. Yeah, right. No, that's, that, that is a entirely, uh, like you say, we could have moved these, the, once you get up to this sort of atmosphere, any given day, any given, you know, you know, whatever you had for breakfast might have moved these movies around. Uh, the Irishman is a, a masterpiece. It's a thorough masterpiece. 
it could have been my number one slot. And literally the only reason it wasn't is just sort of the unity of effect is stronger in Parasite. But Irishman's not a movie about unity of effect. And so you can't really judge one by the other. It's like saying, well, this comedy is better than this murder mystery. Well, yes, but no. So yeah, Irishman is a magnificent film. I think all the films in our top, you know, six or seven, like you said, we got, we got a whole bunch of pinnacles and, uh, we're, we're lucky enough to get to do it. So the Irishman, a terrific choice. And, and, and because it's on Netflix and I uh, was lucky enough to see it in, on a screen first, which is by far the ideal way to see it where you're not yeah. pausing and going to the loo and stuff is, uh, I've figured out uh, a key point of the Scorsese transition of why the voiceover works in his films and it works in no one else's films and why they have momentum. And, uh, and I realized that his genius director, Thomas Gunmacher, uh, does something where in uh, my beating the story discussion of how transitions happen between scenes, uh, the Scorsese Schoonmacher team are unparalleled masters of transitions. And often when they are doing what I call a break, where it's a change of thought and a moving on to another subject entirely, it will be structured so that you think it's a continuation of what's going on that you'll think it's something that you already have suspense about. And then it'll move into that other thing guided often in part by voiceover that links it. And by the time you realize that you're on a new thread, you're engaged in that thread. So you've never had the uh, moment of going, oh, okay, here's a new thing. Uh, okay, I've got to get into this thing. But you're sort of subliminally pulled between unrelated sequences by various connecting effects where you you think it's a follow-up, but no, it's a, a new thing. And, and uh, uh, it just goes, again, to show uh, not only uh, the mastery of Scorsese, but of the, the mastery that arises from his decades-long collaboration with, uh, with Schoonmacher. I just want to mention uh, the more Hitchcock than Hitchcock moment is but one of the many sort of uh, enfoldings of the whole tradition of cinema that Scorsese sees himself in. And once you start looking for little, you know, not even shout outs, not even, you know, quotes, but sort of gestures, affectionate gestures toward, you know, Antonioni or uh, Fellini or other people, you sort of start seeing a lot of it. This is a big collaborative film in a lot of ways. And it's Scorsese looking not just back on his own career, but looking back on the whole tradition of film. And maybe it's just, here I am making a CGI movie for Netflix. This is it. America, cinema is over. Let's, let's all say goodbye to it. And so th there's a lot of that elegy quality to it as well. In addition to being just a crackling good movie on its own merits. Yes. For, for example, and it's full of nods to his previous uh, work and uh, not just with the casting, but very specifically with the casting and not just with the famous faces, mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, the, Bravura tracking shot this time is not across the street into the club uh, the way it is in uh, Goodfellas, but through a, a retirement home. Mm -hmm. And uh, that uh, that's early on in that uh, sort of... Yeah, that, that opening sequence just tells you everything you need to know about the movie. And again, that's, like you say, that's structure, that's script, and that's uh, Thomas Goodman. Oh, Ken, we better end the sequence before we talk for another hour about uh, The Irishman and then backtrack to Parasite and the, the other films in our list. So it's time for us to get out of the cinema hut and move on whatever final segment awaits in this exciting podcast.
Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once again to climb the creakety cobweb stairs where we pause on the landing to uh, wave to the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky, who seems as uninterested as ever as in our nonsense. But we're going to swan on into the Edwardian parlor where awaits in his smoking jacket the consulting occultist. And this time around, Patreon backer Monster Talk is uh, consulting the occultist to find out the answer to the following question. So uh, here we go, uh, Monster, if I may use your first name. I only recently discovered the lore around the tomb of Christian Rosenkreutz. What will happen when the real tomb is discovered? And so this, of course, brings us back into the exciting... Oh, oh, did I say exciting? The uh, (laughs) most anodyne version of the occult possible uh, is Rosicrucianism. Nice folks, most of them. And I think if we want to channel people into a belief in the occult, maybe the uh, finding obscure Masonic uh, symbology in old manuscripts is is perhaps what we want people to be doing. But uh, Ken, uh, before we get specifically onto the issue of uh, tombs, uh, perhaps uh, for those who have not gone back and listened to our other segments that reference Rosicrucianism, uh, hit us with a quick 101. All right. Um, the Rosicrucians are a secret society supposedly founded by a guy named Christian Rosenkreutz. And our buddy, uh, Christian Rosenkreutz, according to the FAMA, which is short for FAMA Fraternitas, uh, which is means uh, the uh, laudable uh, order, uh, Christian Rosenkreutz dies in 1484 and is buried in a magic tomb. And his magic tomb is designed so that entering it, opening it and entering it is an initiatory act and that um, uh, the tomb will open uh, 120 years after his death. And then the people who can go into it can come out and become Rosicrucians and the uh, tomb. uh, There's a lot of very exciting details that are given to how big it is. It is um, uh, eight by five vault. It has a basically octagonal structure. There's a, whole jamble of symbols all over it. Basically, like I say, it's a, it's a, um, uh, initiatory experience. It is lit by a mysterious globe of light that never goes out. And it recapitulates, depending on whether you're the golden dawn or someone writing after the golden dawn, it recapitulates either the Kabbalistic tree of life or it recapitulates something entirely different, possibly an Enochian tablet. Who can say? But the tomb is a structure onto which occultists read the structure of the universe that they have sussed out and say, well, of course the tomb looks like this because this is the structure of the universe. Right. And so basically the promise of the tomb is that once this metaphor becomes literal and we actually find where it is and enter it, 
this is when Rosicrucianism will finally become interesting. Yes. And pay off and magical things will result. But until that time, you've got to keep pouring over old documents, particularly Rosicrucian documents, in order to figure out exactly where uh, this might be. So it's your classic promise of a metaphysical inbreak into our reality that will uh, either A, uh, change everything, or B, change the interior understanding of those who visit it. And if it's B, you can perhaps access it uh, through all sorts of other uh, uh, avenues, whether it be dreams or entering an ecstatic state. But, you know, you can just be changed yourself as a, in a spiritual metaphor sort of way. Or the world can literally uh, be altered from the bottom up and become a, uh, a magical place. So uh, this gives you uh, yet another way to uh, get to that uh, classic uh, urban fantasy trope. Suddenly everything all turned magical. Uh, but what would a magical world look like if it was turned magical for the benefit of people who've been uh, Rosicrucianing it up? Uh, for uh, generations. Well, it wouldn't turn into the fun kind of magic because, as you say, to be a Rosicrucian, you have to have been sort of burrowing your own way through various tiresome documents. The magic thus created would be very intricate and arcane and involve a lot of symbolism, uh, sort of GURPS cabal uh, style magic, lots of, of weird little things. The tomb, by the way, if you're looking for it, is in Mount Abigianus, uh, which is helpfully glossed as a symbolic mountain that exists at the middle of the earth. So <laughs> maybe it's a hollow earth thing. Maybe it's just a mountain that is at the sort of navel of the earth, one of the many navels that the earth has possessed during its Gypsy Rose Lee-like progression. And uh, finding the tomb and opening it might be the mission of, uh, it's certainly the mission of Rosicrucians, um, and it might be the mission of people who think that once magic happens, they, because they have been, uh, swatting uh, up uh, obscure occult details rather than getting out in the sunshine and meeting people uh, that they will get to be top dogs. So it right. might be uh, good, happy-go-lucky simpleton Rosicrucians, or it might be evil, bad um, uh, occultists looking to open up the tomb. And then you, you can set up, for example, in a game, a race between two factions and uh, very Jules Verne, uh, you've got the same clues. You can even give people out copies of the FEMA and let them pick it themselves, although I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But you can have all manner of fun. And there are many fake tombs that have been made or uh, versions of the tomb that have been made by uh, members of the Golden Dawn and other things. And you can go to those tombs and get sort of first glances and uh, and examples. The tomb opening, you do have to sort of ask the question of, is Christian Rosenkreutz still there? Uh, is he going to sit up and say, well, did you f conquer the world for me? And if you say no, then maybe he'll be mad. Maybe he's a vampire. Maybe he's a mystical emanation or an atheist or something else powerful and strange and uncanny. Or maybe there's just a dead but miraculously uncorrupted body lying there that you then have to figure out what it's good for, if anything. Right. And and speaking of Rosicrucianism not being the fun kind of occultism, whatever this new magical reality is will have a heavily esoteric Christian uh, nature to it. Because guess what? The tomb you're looking for is a guy named Christian Rosie Cross. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is the cool kind of Christianity where if you know the right words, God gives you magic. Yeah. Uh, so that's, you know, uh, one step up from, you know, having to sit in the church and on an uncomfortable chair and listen to sermons, but it's still a 
version that may not lead to orcs and elves and stuff suddenly appearing, uh, but uh, a a world of sort of uh, spiritual enlightenment and uh, and of course the, the Christian Rosencrantz himself is a is a metaphor for Christ, uh, and once again uh, that may be of great uh, spiritual import for questers, uh, but not necessarily the thing that is the most amenable to turning into crazy pulp nonsense. And uh, at the very least, it sets up a, unless you're playing some sort of Pendragon system in which Christian virtue is a main core of your character, it sets up a weird disjoint between the nature of the magic and the nature of the uh, players and the adventures they go on, because people who are really concerned about Christian morality make uh, at least mediocre murder hobos. I mean, sometimes they can overcome like the Crusaders did, but by and large, if you're concerned with the sort of uh, nice, uh, high Lutheran, but lots of weirdness uh, magic that the Rosicrucians are, the, the, there's less smiting the pain uh for them and more sort of endlessly talking about emanations of planets. Right. So Da Vinci Code style, your uh, gaming application of this has to be that there is some sinister force out to uh, destroy uh, the tomb, and you've got to beat them to it, which means you've got to find out uh, where it is. Because uh, it may not be that uh, the, the great mes- metaphysical forces of good actually want the inbreak of the tomb that changes everything, uh, but rather just want the idea of it to continue to exist in the world and give inspiration to the esoteric few who have some, I don't know, positive purpose on the world that I can't quite come up with. But nonetheless, <laughs> it's it's bad if uh, if the uh, metaphorical idea of the tomb is uh, literalized and then destroyed. Uh, and so then that uh, gives you sinister forces to go after who could be your good old-fashioned Satanists, or they could be uh, aliens who uh, want to uh, replace uh, the entire myth structure of the world or uh, some weird uh, more Kockian uh, character using the cut-up system in order to uh, alter reality, uh, so that the idea of the tomb is a is a reality anchor that's good, even for people who are not esoteric Christians or even Christians at all, but rather it's just one of those uh, symbols of, of goodness that has to continue to exist, so uh, you'd better not uh, let them uh, blow it up, because uh, that would have a, a huge impact, and that could be an esoterist uh, a scam where they could uh, create a fake tomb in order to destroy it. But by destroying it, they would cause enough distress to get magic out of it and uh, bring more outer dark uh, entities uh, through the membrane. Now, I know what you're saying, Robin. You're saying, given that all that's going to happen is a spiritual reawakening that makes the world better, why am I bothering to find this tomb? Well, let me tell you what the Fama itself promises are in the tomb. Every side or wall has a door for a chest wherein there lay diverse things, especially all of our books. Ooh, magic books. Herein we also found his itinerarium and vitam, which I suppose means his uh, life and the uh, uh, places that he went to learn all of his magic. So that's useful. In another chest were looking glasses of diverse virtue. That's nice. In other places, little bells, burning lamps, and chiefly, wonderful artificial songs. So, I think this is saying that the tomb has uh, Brian Wilson in it. It's got Spotify, clearly. Yeah, right. And uh, the suggestion of books indicates that you can get through there to other magical libraries. You can get to the Library of Babel or mm-hmm. the uh, Library of Alexandra or what have you, because uh, 
uh, we all know that once you start literalizing metaphor, it's just a matter of a hop, skip, and a jump uh, from one metaphor to the other. Uh, that's just the simple process of uh, lateral uh, magical thinking. And uh, it may be that uh, there's a, a situation where questing for any mythical place, whether it be uh, rediscovering Eden or finding the Ark or finding the tomb of Christian Rosenkreutz or the uh, similar uh, equivalent mythic realms in uh, the, the aquatic city of East, whatever it is, that there's a, a campaign on to just literalize as many of these as possible and sort of connect the, the dots and uh, and do something to the world so that uh, each uh, session of your scenario could be about uh, locating uh, an, an, another mythical legendary place and protecting it from uh, whatever it is, which is starting to sound like a feng shui campaign with lots of blowing up and stuff. And so you could do Shangri-La one week and, uh, uh, and continue to move on through uh, the list of, of legendary places and model a whole campaign on that. Yeah. And I can also uh, assert without fear of contradiction, uh, it's certainly in the short term, that the Golden Dawn believes that the mystical book of tea that Christian Rosenkreutz holds on his chest the body of Christian Rosenkreutz holds is actually the tarot. So if you wanted yet more fun things to add to your campaign, uh, the tarot can be used as clues for divination or methodologies for getting into the, the tomb, or it can be simply a source of imagery and bad guys. So you're dealing with the Knight of swords and he's a, he's, he's a problem. He's, he's not helpful. Uh, that might be a fun uh, way to kick off a campaign is that you are all, uh, mystical questers. You've discovered the, the tomb of Christian Rosenkreutz. You know, it won't be there for very long. Uh, metaphors can't stay real for, for that long, but you get there and he gives each of you a tarot card uh, and players who are willing to go with a complete uh, random uh, character generation system can just have you deal them a random uh, a tarot card. You might want to stick to the major arcana just uh, to keep things uh, maximally interesting. Uh, and everybody uh, gets their uh, tarot card that is the core of their magical identity. And then you become, uh, that becomes your character class and you go off and develop uh, a character. All and you're the new Rosicrucians and you emerge from the tomb with this magical knowledge that you can't directly share because it's dependent on having been in the tomb, but you can create a secret society of do-gooders that go around stopping evil, just like the real Rosicrucians weren't. Right. Uh, so, you know, you can have be a, an occult superhero group where one of you is the hangman and the other is death and the other is fortune's wheel and, and so forth. And uh, you can base all of your, your uh, exciting powers on that. Well, speaking of exciting powers, uh, I think it's time for us to use our exciting power to exit this podcast uh, while simultaneously casting the right to summon another one that will materialize seven days from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astragon. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Don't demonstrate a failure to show respect. Join such beloved Patreon backers as... Patrick Joint. Adam Grotjohn. Darren Dumay. Alexander Zimmerman. And Andrew Todd. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our hottest new design, Carcosa Fandango. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff.